Now that I'm back in the events business, I wanted to hear how someone who's built their conference network into a 300 plus global event enterprise got started. What could we learn from them about starting a conference? Dan Taylor founded Apps Events, a conference series that teaches Google's G Suite apps to students and teachers. How he got there is interesting, but it's his advice for anyone looking to start a conference, minimize expenses, and maximize revenues that really make this episode one to save. If you're thinking of launching your own conference, seminar, mastermind, or even an online class, get ready to take notes. There's a ton of valuable information in here. Now, please welcome Dan Taylor. that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Hey, Dan, thanks a ton for coming on the Build Cycle podcast. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Right on. So you started a few different events, and judging from your LinkedIn timeline, it looks like a couple of them were started very close to each other, but you started one called Course Director and then Events Frame, and you've since sold both of those companies. So before we dive into the main topic, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about those real quick, like what kind of businesses they were and how you got started with those. Yeah, so both. Both those companies are SaaS products, which I was, you know, I, I founded. I mean, I came up with the idea in both cases, and then I got a couple of partners on board in both cases. Um, you know, like, I, I don't want to say I'm any kind of SaaS guru because both of those products kind of got to kind of okay monthly income, and then we sold them for, you know, good money, but not crazy money. So, you know, I think I've got fairly average success as, as a SaaS founder. You know, I've, I'm good at starting things and I'm good and I'm good at managing to sell them, but I've never really done it in a big way. You know? Yeah, it, it, the growing part is hard. It's a it's a different skill set, I think, than the startup skill set. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're two different things. So the first one, Cost Director, that was um, that's a product that was in the Google Apps Marketplace, as it was then called, and it was for schools. And it integrated with Google Apps, now G Suite, and allowed schools to create classrooms. And, and when students submitted work, it went into, into Google Drive and stuff and created folder structure automatically. And that was, um, so I started you know, my, my current business about 2011, and we just developed that product because we had a bunch of schools ask, you know, I, I was kind of doing support contracts for school and some training and different things to connect it to Google. And, uh, and schools kept asking for the same thing. You know, we said we wanted a way to create this learning management system. So we just went and built it, you know, like I got together with two guys I knew. We built it. It was all very quick, you know. I mean, from founding that company to selling it was less than a year. And, um, you know, we got some decent customers. You know, we had Rutgers University, still use it in the U.S. We had Eton College. It's a very famous school in England where the royal family go. Like a, we had some big name customers. We just never really sort of, jumped it to the next level you know and we got an offer to buy it so so we just sold it nice and what about events frame 
Yeah, Vents Frame. Well, again, it was sort of, you know, it came from like scratching it. So we'll talk about it, I'm sure. But I, I have a company. We run a lot of events. You know, we run over 300 events a year. And we, we used Eventbrite. We paid a lot of money for Eventbrite and then looked at some different solutions, Events Case, Bizaboo, a few other ones, which didn't work out for us. Um, so then I was like, why don't we just build our own system, you know? And there's a guy, a guy Simon Payne, who was one of the co-founders of Lead Pages, which you may know. And Simon's someone I know in Prague, and so we, we started working together on it. We got another guy, James, involved. Uh, James Seho, who worked with Apps Events, who emailed you. And um, we built it, you know, built it for ourselves. And then obviously with, with, with in mind that we could, we could, other companies would use this because anyone who runs any event can, can use the system. Um, and again, you know, we, we grew it. Um, we, we did an AppSumo launch. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with AppSumo. Oh, yeah. It's a daily deal. Yeah, like a daily deal for software website. And you sell your software for a fixed lifetime you know, fee. Uh, we did that, you know, got some money. And then we got a bunch of subscribers. And again, uh, we got an offer to buy the company really recently. I mean, it's just, it's literally going through as we speak. I mean, we've, we've, we've exchanged the contracts and we're just transferring all the accounts over. Like, right, it's like a live thing right now. But basically, you know, the reason for me for selling this was really like, I realized I found it really hard to run two businesses. And, and you know, maybe if I had more of, was a better manager or I had some more structure in place, but it, it was just tough, you know. I've got my main business, which is doing well, it's growing. And, you know, this was a distraction. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's making money. It's, it's a great company. And, and, and I'm really kind of torn whether we should have sold it or not. But, you know, I just found it hard. Like, I've got one business and running two, just, I, I, it wasn't for me, you know. Yeah, it is hard to focus. I mean, I've got bike rumors, the main thing. And then what you and I are going to talk about a little bit is the events. Because I've started a event and have run some in the past. And it is. It, it's, you really have to try very hard to not let one become a distraction from the other and give each enough focus that they can both thrive and grow and succeed. Um, and, and you know, what? I think, I think it's easier. I, I think I would do it again. If, if both businesses had the same or similar kind of target audience, you know, the problem with this is apps events, you know, uh, my main business, our focus is teachers and people that work for international schools. Uh, and then with the software events frame, it was anyone who runs an event and it wasn't education focused. It was completely, I couldn't use my current list. I couldn't use our current marketing channels couldn't even use us, you know, any, any of our social media pages. It was all just a completely new approach. And, you know, we never figured it out properly. You know, I think if you've got a similar audience, it, it, it makes things easier, at least for me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, that's the target audience for my event is also a lot of the people I talk to for bike room or the brand managers and stuff. So, but yeah. yeah, reaching like those are the easy people to reach. It's everybody else that I want to get into my event is, I'm like, I'm still trying to figure that out. It's, which yeah. is one of the things I want to ask you later on is how you get sure. the audience. So let's, let's put pause on that for a second. Um, of my next question was, why did you sell them? But you just answered that. So yeah. you also, apps events is the big one. And like you said, runs kind of Google suite education and certification programs globally. So originally I was thinking, I'd ask what made you want to transition from SaaS to that, but you kind of started, it looks like to me, apps events concurrently with events frame and ran those for quite a few years. I think they both started around 2012, 2013, right? Yeah, like exactly. 2011, 2012. Yeah, well, it, it was cost director, not, not events frame originally. So, yeah, I mean, what happened was I, um, I, I co-founded a recruitment agency based here in Prague with a good friend of mine. Uh, and then I ended up selling my share in the recruitment agency to, to the lady 
um, Hannah Harris, who's now the manager of the company, actually, she, she sort of bought out my share. And that's a whole different story. I was just, you know, it was a great experience starting a business, but, I, you know, I hated recruitment and, and I couldn't get out of it quickly enough. You know, so I managed <laughs> to sell my share in that company. And, and um, a guy, you know, I used to be a contractor, IT contractor before the recruitment agency. And a guy who was my boss then had gone to work for Google. And, and he was like, Dan, take a look at Google, you know. It's a lot of really interesting stuff. They've got Google Apps. It's an amazing system. I don't know if you use Google Apps, but you know, oh, yeah. I've used it for All a long time. Yeah, I mean, everyone does it. It's, it's, it's kind of a default you know, for entrepreneurs. And, um, and he'd gone to work for Google, and he was like, by the way, you know, it's, it's free for schools and universities, so you know, it's got a huge potential. So I was wanting to get back into something technical after my sort of foray into recruitment. And um, so I got, I got into it, and I figured out, you know, I wasn't sure what the business was, but I knew there was a lot of interest there. So I started doing all, you know, like I was doing everything, throwing things at the wall to see what stuck really. But most of the kind of consulting stuff, you know, I'd, I'd set people up on Google apps. I'd do migrations, uh, you know, for schools. Uh, I, I got a bunch of support contracts. Uh, I got, you know, which, which is what led to doing course director. So I, I got all this work and then, you know, funnily enough, I went to attend a, a Google for Education conference in the U.S. Back at this time, there, there had been no events in, in Europe at all. So I went to attend this conference in America. And I was like, why don't I just run one of these uh, in Europe? So I contacted Google. There was no partner program for education back then. And I, my, my friend obviously was working at Google. He introduced me to someone on the education team. And I was like, you know, can I run a Google event in Europe? And they were like, yeah, I guess so. You know, they, they didn't say yes, but they didn't say no, you know. So... I kind of sort of had approval and I went and did it and I actually didn't think I was going to make any money out of it. I did it initially to promote the software, which we'd now developed and just to promote my kind of consulting venture, you know, of like helping schools out with Google. And it's funny because I was on a call with Google and I was actually, I started selling tickets, you know, and I'd made, you know, I don't know how much money by that point, maybe $20,000 or something, you know, people were buying tickets. And I was just about to ask Google, like, who, who do I pay this money to, you know? When someone on the call made some comment like, oh, you know, glad to see you're making some money out of this, Dan. And I was like, first of all, I'm glad I kept my mouth shut, you know, because I almost <laughs> ended up like not making any money. But actually, they were like, they were fine about it. So I was like, oh, actually. So, you know, I ran this event in Prague. It was the first ever, it was a European Google for Education Summit. You know, huge interest. You know, like if you run anything that's new, you get a lot of interest. So, you know, I had people come from all across Europe. And I ended up making quite a bit of money out of it. But more importantly, I really enjoyed it. You know, like I met people, so many. I mean, that first event, the contacts I've got now, still people I'm friends with from that event. You know, there's a lot. And and so, you know, I was actually thinking, you know, why don't I just run more of these events? You know, it's it's more profitable than than the rest of the business. More profitable than the software. Um, and and I, and I just kept doing more. You know, a, a guy turned up from that event who was from Bangkok. He said, why don't we do one in Bangkok? Um, really interesting character, a guy called Wayne. And he was at the American school in Bangkok. And I'd never met the guy. He just turned up for the conference. And he was like, look, let's do a conference in Bangkok in a few months. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, can I just take all the signs and everything to Bangkok? And I was like, I was like, this guy I've never met before. And literally, <laughs> I took him to the airport. I loaded him up with all the signs, everything. And I'm like, am I ever going to see this guy again? <laughs> Has he just taken all my stuff? And, uh, and we ran an event in Bangkok. That was my number two. Nice. That's, so that... I've got a quick question on that then. What's the, yeah. the language issues? Like, do you run everything in English? Yeah, good point. Um, we have done up until this point almost everything in English, but it's starting to change now because now you know, we're an official Google partner. We're doing a lot of stuff all around the world. So there's more and more requirement for local language. So 
we've done, we do a Taiwan summit and, and we have some, some Chinese sessions, like a, a separate strand of the, of the event is, is Chinese. Um, we've done stuff in all the Scandinavian languages, Swedish, Norwegian, uh, Finnish, Danish, um, a few things in German. So yeah, we're doing, we're doing more and more, you know, the, the thing that slowed me down on that was more just having good, a good network of trainers and presenters in local languages that I knew were going to be amazing. You know? That was, that was kind of what slowed me down, but yeah, it's, it's, it's coming and then we're doing more and more of it. Right on. Did you run but, you know, in, probably for like seven years? So sorry, for like seven years, it was only English, like nothing else. Yeah. It did that cause any problems? Like, did you ever get to an event, you know, like say, I mean, you're in Prague, right? Like, I guess some people speak English there, obviously a lot of expats there for sure, but you know, there or Bangkok or wherever and have to like slow down the pace a little bit. Like, how did you deal with it in an area where English was a second language if, you know, and maybe not even super prominent or prevalent? You know, I think because we advertised the event as being in English and everything, you know, all the promotion, everything, it was clear it was all in English. I think people tended to only come if they, if they had good, good English, you know, okay. I mean, we do different types of events, you know, some of them are small, you know, Google has a bunch of certifications for teachers. We run these boot camps. And if the class is really struggling with English or just, just at a lower level, you know, sometimes they're just more entry level people, you know, that then people have to slow it down. You know, that's, that's what being a good presenter is about, you know, being able to on the fly switch what you're talking about, you know, depending on the group. Yeah. Are you more on the back end of your events or are you also a presenter? I, um, I'm more at the back end now. I'm trying to be more at the back end, honestly, because I think now I've got a good enough team that they run it much better without me i'm um you know i'm a google google's got a program i highly recommend anyone who's interested in google stuff become a google certified trainer it takes a while but i was i was the first one actually in, in mainland europe to become a certified trainer back in 2013 or 14 i think i did it maybe 12 and um to do that you know you've got to do 12 uh 12 training sessions a year to kind of recertify which is great so it makes me go and do at least 12 sessions a year uh, you know, sometimes I'll do two or three at once at one summit, but, um, I, I do it, I do it because of that, you know, um, you know, I've often thought, should I go down the route of keynoting? I've, I've, I've actually been asked to speak at a conference in China, someone else's conference this year. And I've, I had a couple of requests last year and I didn't do it, but I'm, I'm now I've kind of stuck away from, but now I'm thinking maybe I will start and go to keynote at a few events. I think it could be, or you know, just keen or not always keynote, but just, just present at other events. You know, I think it's a good could be a good way but but honestly right now I've, i'm trying to get myself out of it apart from my 12 google official google ones i need to do I, i've kind of stayed out of it more or less all right well i imagine at 300 events there's no way you can present at every single one of those uh, so i wanted to just real quick give to help put some of my next questions into reference for people who don't know me that well i actually have a little bit of a background in events i've run 24-hour mountain bike races in the past before selling that off to some friends that ended up growing it way bigger. Uh, and I've helped others develop the curriculum for some of their events. And now I've started my own content marketing conference called Peak Content Summit. So I'm familiar with running like a single event, but your network of events is now global and huge, which to me just seems daunting. But I, you know, I know it didn't start out that way. Like how quickly did you grow from that first one in Europe and then uh, Bangkok? And then like, how quick did it grow to this volume of events? Yeah, so we did. <clears throat> I should I should check the the, the list, but we did um, two in the first year at, Bang, at Prague and Bangkok. Then we did about eight, eight or nine second year, and then probably 
40, it went grew big, and then probably, you know, we probably grew up like 20 or 30 extra a year, 60, 80, you know, like that, you know, until it's over 300. But, you know, we don't we don't run that many big events. We run a lot of small events. So we run we run the summits, which are like conferences, which have anywhere between 80 and 300 people typically, and we'll we'll do maybe 20 of those events, and then we'll do a lot of events that are kind of certification events, which will have anywhere from sort of 20 to you know they, they could be 60. We could run two or three rooms, or it could be 80 even, but you know a lot a lot of a lot of these kind of smaller events. But you know what's interesting is what you said. Everyone thinks it's daunting to run a lot of events but it gets it gets easier and easier the more you run because you get processes in place you know like if you if you run one event and that's not your main business like it takes up half your year you know it, it literally is just um it's, it's it's the hardest thing ever but if you run 10 events then like you know i can talk about it but i've got i've got a team in cebu in the philippines who manage all you know all the inquiries from attendees they manage all the websites they manage all the social media all the marketing um and then we've got regional directors in every region of the world who run it on, on profit share. So, you know, if, if you start to structure a business around it and it's not just a side hustle, then it becomes easier. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, that using the same marketing process more or less for every event, you, you, have to, you have to tweak how you're doing your, you know, your, your social media advertising and your social media promotion and your newsletter and everything. But, but you know, it's a process. Let's talk event management. I definitely have a lot of questions, but I want to know, like, where do you start? What's the first thing you're looking at when adding a new event? There's a few things. I mean, first of all, you've got to be sure. There's, there's three things, you know. Is it a good location? Is it good dates? And is there interest in it from the audience? You know what I mean? Which they're big, three big questions. Maybe more, but they're the three main ones, you know. So because you can have, and you've all got to be right, you know, because you can have a great event, right? But if it's like the same weekend as a conference, all your audience are going to go to, or it's like a, you know, the middle of a school holiday when everyone with kids is away, or you know what I mean, name your reason. You can have the best event and, and no one's going to come, you know. Or you know, conversely, if you've got, you know, like like a like really good dates, but maybe you've just angled it wrong. Maybe you've gone for like you know lower level people in a certain profession, and, and it's it's higher level people, then, then they're not going to come, you know? So it's kind of getting those three things lined up, which, which is, that's, that's where you start, you know? And, and I always try to, um, and I'm a bit different because I host my events at schools. So I do them in partnership with a school. I get the school to guarantee to send some attendees. So, you know, I kind of know that, or most of my events actually, I've done other ones, like I partnered on microconf and some other things which were different, but generally speaking, I work with schools, you know? So I kind of figure out that, you know, but it at least works for them. You know, they've got a bunch of teachers that want to come. They like the dates and they like the content, you know. But those three things are what you've got to focus on. Yeah. How do you target the right people? I mean, I guess with schools, it's sort of easy, but surely there's got to be some lessons in there for other people running other events. You know, it's the thing about events is like, you know, there's two types of people, I guess, running an event. Number one is if you've already got an audience, and number two is if you don't. Like, if you already have an audience, it's it's infinitely easier to run an event, you know, because you're just targeting. They know you already, you know. You're just targeting um, your event, your existing audience. If you don't have an audience, then um, as a first-time event runner, it's hard, you know. Like when you run year two, year three of the same event, it's great. You know, you'll you'll try to get a bunch of returning people. You know, you make sure everyone has an amazing, amazing time, and I can tell you how to do that. Then people will come by, but it's, but you know, I'm not going to lie to you and your audience. Like if it's, if it's a first time event, 
and you don't have an existing audience from your business or from a podcast or from a blog or from whatever way, it's, it's really hard. You've got to hustle, you know? And I don't, I, I think the, the reality is that, you know, it's, you've got to do everything. You've got to, um, you've got to do social media promotion on everything, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, maybe Twitter. Um, you've got to do paid advertising, but you know, you've got to, it's old school hustling. You know, I think when I, I you know, on, on this pod, on my podcast, the events podcast, I've talked to a bunch of people who, who run conferences and, and it's a lot of it's old school hustling. You know, it's finding people on LinkedIn, contacting them, cold contact or email, cold calling people, chasing people. I think, you know, you've, You've, someone described it as taking massive action. Uh, one of the guys I interviewed, like you've just got to take huge action. If it's a first time event and you don't have a big audience, you've just got to hustle. And it means doing the thing that everyone's terrified of now is like calling people up <laughs> right. and chasing them down, you know, and, and that's just what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because that's actually what I have found to be most successful so far in, in generating like legitimate interest in mine and getting people to sign up. It's just, I've been using LinkedIn a ton, reaching out to people and, and, conversing and, and like posting help what I think is helpful information. It seems to be getting a good response, but like using that to generate interest and, and get real dialogue going about it versus I've tried a couple of small paid campaigns on Facebook and Twitter. And, and I think I even did one on LinkedIn and they generated like literally zero. And so now yeah. I'm kind of curious, like what, as far as paid tactics go, what have you done that's worked? Well, I mean, one thing, I'll, I'll, one tip that I use is, on I do a lot of LinkedIn outreach, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm touch wood, like I'm kind of lucky in the sense that I'm not doing most of this myself now. You know, I have we can talk about the team, but I have a team in place. But, but I do a lot of LinkedIn outreach, and I actually have one of my team in the Philippines. Part of his job, so um, you know, your LinkedIn, you've got Sales Navigator. You can subscribe to Sales Navigator, it's, uh, which you know allows you to, to better target people. It's I think it's five hundred or six hundred dollars a year. It's great. So I give him access to my LinkedIn account, and he uh, and I do I do some search filters on people I think are interested for our events. He issues contact requests as me, starts a dialogue with people, and then so he does the maximum. You can do about a hundred a day realistically. I think you've got to change the numbers, but I hope no one from LinkedIn listens to this podcast. I'm <laughs> getting banned. Basically, he does it, and then then I jumped in. I jump in if there's any interest. So because of that, every day, you like six days a week or five days a week, there's there's a hundred requests going out to people. He's starting a dialogue. Uh, you know, he, he knows how to follow up on some basic stuff. But if as soon as it gets interesting, I jump in. You know, and and this is to get sponsors and stuff. So that's that's one tip I do is like, you know, you could you could hire someone uh, part time, and if anyone wants help with them, you know, I, I'm happy to help them with how to do this. You know, and and start this whole LinkedIn thing. And I, I'd say. Let's say this costs you, you know, three hundred dollars a month or five hundred a month or whatever, maybe less. I'd say it's better spending the time on this, getting a person to help you do this, than to buy the ads. You know? Yeah, it's uh, especially for that amount of money. I may follow up to you later on how to do exactly yeah. that. And you're not the first person to recommend um, people in the Philippines. It seems like there's a really good workforce there that's being underutilized. Yeah, I, I've had a team in Cebu since my first employee, uh, full, full-time team member was uh, Cebu. And actually, you, you mentioned before the interview about Chris Ducker, who I interviewed on, on my podcast. And Chris Ducker has a company called, one of his ventures called Virtual Staff Finder. And I found my first team member through through him. And he, he Chris used to have a, um, a co-working space in Cebu, which is the second biggest city in the Philippines. So I actually, back then, I hired someone and I went out to meet them. I, I went out there for two weeks, had, had a really cool time. You know, we worked together in this co-working space, got them up to speed. 
Um, they actually left like shortly after, but fortunately I'd hired my second person then. And then I've now got four people there and, and I've kind of hired them all myself or, you know, through my current team. So I, I, I've had a, I've had a team there now, you know, now for, you know, whatever, eight years. Uh, and, and that's kind of a backbone of, of my operation is, is these four guys in Cebu and I, I want to grow it in the future. Definitely. Nice. Okay. So like any business events, there's, uh, revenues and expenses. Let's start with the latter. Yep. What are the main expenses in running an event? Uh, venue speakers and advertising costs are the three, the three. So you've got to try to minimize all of them, you know, um, if it's a first or second time event, you know, you can usually get people to speak for free. You know, I, you can, you'd be amazed how many people you can get to speak for free. My first event, my first maybe two events, maybe even three, I didn't pay anyone anything. Um, I was just, you know, I needed the money. I was, I, it's my only source of income, you know, and I was honest about it to people. And I got people to speak for free. Uh, I still do get a lot of people speaking for free. A lot of people just want want the exposure, you know. Um, you obviously can't let them pitch anything because that ruins the message. But but you know, as we've grown and grown, now we hire we hire a lot more speakers. So we end up paying for speakers for sure. That that's one expense. The venue is the is the big one. You know, that's what can kill you. You know, if you you know if you pick a hotel, typically you, you have to pay. A third up front, like a month before, usually a third at the time of the event and, and a third after it. It depends. If you run events in the U.S., like you probably know this, but the U.S. is crazy. You know, like a lot of the events are kind of union controlled. They charge you for every little thing. You know, the bills get, get a bit crazy. So keeping an eye on the costs is uh, a big thing. And, and if, anything you can do to get a free or a cheap event, you know, if you can run it uh, at a co-working space or a church hall or a school or anything like that, you know, you've got to be careful because if it's, if it's kind of a high-ticket event, people want a nice environment. But that's, that's the second biggest cost. And always look to mitigate it. A lot of hotels will do a deal where, like, if you can get your attendees to stay at the room, they'll give you, like, 10% or even – I've negotiated even 20% of the hotel room rate back to you. So, for example, you know, typically hotels will have – they call it a DDR, a delegate day rate. You know, so let's say it's $50 per person per day, so $100 for a two-day event, you know. And, you know, you've got – you have 100 people, so it's like a $10,000 cost for the venue. But, but, you know, you can negotiate the hotel, but if all these people stay there and they spend $400 per person on the hotel, which means you and you get 20% back, you know, you could you could make back a lot of that by, by doing a good negotiation with the hotel. Yeah. I, one uh, of the ones, I'm, probably the hotel I'm looking at, they've, they've offered um, basically a pretty good room rate. I'm happy with that. The uh, conference room that they have, they offered it free with a pretty – sizable food and beverage i think you know it's like three thousand dollars i think um and i was thinking okay well that's you know there's no cost i was going to provide lunch for the attendees during the day anyway like that's not bad but then what i think what really kind of turns me off of that is you look at the the lunch options and it's like okay uh we can do a box lunch for like twenty dollars a head or if you want like buffet style it'd be like 25 to 30 a head and i'm sitting there thinking like we could literally walk two doors down to your restaurant and feed everybody for like $15 a head. Like I don't understand the economics here. And I think it's just their way of padding it to recoup the cost. But yeah, I mean, look, they're going to, they want to make, let's, let's say, let's pick out a number. Like they're going to, they want to get $50 a person out of you. They can, they can do it in one way or another way. (laughs) You know, they can do it on the, on the, on the hiring you the room or they can make it look good by saying the room is free and you pay for the food, you know, but you're still going to pay it. <laughs> yeah. They're going to get you one way or the other. But everything's negotiable, you know? I mean, is, it, is this in the U.S.? Yes. 
Yeah, which is which is the worst, as you know. Like, um, um, you know, it's every, remember everything's negotiable. You know, like get a deal from one hotel, go and talk to another hotel. Um, you know, then you can come back and say, look, I got this deal. You know, and, and you, maybe you'll get a better one. You know, you can negotiate absolutely everything. You know, if they, if they need the business, you know, they'll be they'll be more keen. Um, you know, I mean, people get free hotels and and really and discounted food sometimes as well. You know, it all depends on it's all supply and demand. You know. Yeah. Fortunately, it's kind of like a low season time in in Nashville when I'm doing it, so I'm I'm getting I, I think pretty good rates. But yeah, I agree. It's like if you don't ask, then you'll never know. And I always always ask. To be honest, that sounds pretty good. I mean, if you're if you're getting a free you know you're getting a free room and all the AV all the AV support, and you're only paying twenty or thirty dollars a person a day, I mean that, that's a that's a good price, you know. All right. Okay. Good to know. Um, any surprise expenses that people don't realize or like the after the fact, they're like, "Ooh, crap." Um, I mean, I, you know, like, because I was kind of useless when I started this. Sometimes I wouldn't agree everything. I'd get speakers who suddenly, you know, I'd agree a fee, and they'd suddenly send me an invoice for all these, you know, like their taxi transfer and their SIM card and all this other crap, and I'd be like, no, "We didn't agree that," you know, because I wasn't like now. I'm super concrete. Everything. It's anyone I pay is a fixed fee. Um. And that's it. It's everything. You know, if you have to buy another flight, you miss your flight. That's on you. If you have to, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't really nail things down with my speakers and some, you know, some people, you sort of lose a bit of faith in human nature sometimes, you know, they can be a bit cheeky and it's really short sighted because you never want to work with these people again once they try to hustle you like this, but you know, it happens. So that was kind of my only surprise expense. Everything else, you know, what I love about events as a business model is, you know, you run your event, you, you know, you, you, I, I do a PNL. I've just got a big spread. It's very old school, but I've got a big spreadsheet with a tab for every event. And, you know, we track everything and, you know, you pretty much know at the end of it, this is what you pay. This is what's coming in and you move on to the next event. It's over. You know, you close it off, you've made your money and you're on to the next one. You know, sometimes you lose money. I mean, you know, I, when you run as many events as, as, as we do, sometimes you make money, sometimes you don't obviously on average you do, but you know, I'm at the situation now when I, some events I know I'm not going to make any money out of, but it's it's still worth me doing it because I'll get to reach a lot of people. We get to, you know, people have an amazing time. They'll recommend this to someone else, you know, uh, and, and have a great experience and we'll run events. So, you know, for me, I'm in a weird situation that we don't always make money out of our events, but, but I never cancel them. And that's, that's a big tip I'm going to give you and your listeners is never cancel an event. Once you do that, you know, you, you annoy people, people won't trust you ever going to do it, you know. Even if you're going to lose a bit of money, you know, you, you run the event. People might disagree with me on this, but but I never, ever cancel an event. Yeah, I think, you'd, like you said, people wouldn't trust you after that. You'd sort of ruin your reputation as an event manager or host, presenter or whatever. Um, and, one, and once you run it, next year you're on year two. And year two is already like, you know, you can say come back for year two of the event. People can see there's social proof you've run an event before. People aren't, you know, people are always, you know, skeptical of a first year event. But a second year event... You know, you you get some good buzz on social media. You get people talking about it. You know, second year, you'll you'll get more people. Yeah, cool. Is there any one more financial question on expenses? Is there anything people think they need to spend money on that really isn't necessary? Um, you know, actually, I'm going to turn the question around. The thing you should definitely do, which some people don't do, is um, have a, a good networking party and, and buy the drinks. Don't don't skimp on that. That's the most important part of the event. You know, arguably the most important part is having a great networking event. You know, I always buy the drinks for networking event. I mean, it depends. 
depending on how many people are coming, um, you know, we might just buy the first few drinks or if it's a small group, we'll buy drinks all night. But food and drinks in the evening, um, I think it is essential. That's kind of a, I'm so I'm actually answering your question the other way around. Like that's, that's something people don't do, but they should do. Right. Yeah. And I've the other way plan. around, no, I'm not sure. I mean, um, Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't spend a lot of money on swag and giveaways. I mean, we haven't talked about sponsors yet, but you should try to get sponsors to maybe pay for that kind of thing. Um, no, I mean, you know, the the, the costs are, the costs are pretty self-explanatory for for events. I think it's you know, it's it's not rocket science. Um, doesn't mean it's easy to do, but it but it, you know, it, it's it's a simple economics of an event. Yeah. What about like on-site signage? That's one thing I'm trying to figure out. Is you know, like, I mean, the stuff. Unless you re, you don't put dates and sponsor logos on it, you could reuse it year after year, or at you know multiple events in a year. But it seems to me that once you're there and you're seated and the focus is on the presentation, like all that other stuff around, it maybe it disappears. But then at the same time, when you're walking into it and you're you're seeing it, and you, if you see a lot of signage and lights or whatever, like it sort of maybe gives that uh, impression that this is hey, this is a legit event. Look at all this stuff, right? Like we're. Yeah. What all do you guys put up and what do you found is actually worth spending the money on? I think it's definitely half a signage because, you know, you're creating a whole like kind of world that people are immersing themselves in for a day or two, you know, so they've got to feel like they're part of it. So we have quite a lot of signs, you know, we'll have a lot of standard standard roll-up standing signs. I mean, one sign outside the venue so people know where they are, what, at least, you know, one or two signs by the registration desk we'll have one or two on the main stage two on the main stage usually so you know they're, they're appearing all the photos which is another important thing you know people are taking pictures of the speakers your signs are right next to the screen or the speaker um we'll also make another big backdrop make a photo booth so get people to take um you know pictures of themselves and post them so you know we'll put a bunch of you know kind of silly things like hats and you know like fancy dress kind of things people will take their pictures by the photo booth backdrop so i yeah i, I wouldn't i wouldn't do it because you know, it's not that expensive to make these signs. I mean, you might only spend $50, $30, dollars a sign or something. You know, maybe you'll get six of them. Um, you know, we do some big, some big uh, banners as well. We can tie the fences outside the events sometimes. I, I think it's good to do. I think it creates a bit of an atmosphere. Um, yeah, I, I think it's good. But you know, obviously, it all depends how much money you're making. You know, if it's a really small community event and you know you're only making a few hundred dollars, then then I wouldn't do it. Okay, so let's talk revenue. The obvious ones are, you know, attendee registration and sponsorship. Do you want to start with those and any tips or feedback on how to maximize those? Yeah, well, that's it, really. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a chicken and, the, and an egg because you, you're only going to get sponsors if, if you've got attendees. You know, if so, it's easy to get sponsors when you when it's a repeat event when you can say, look, we had a hundred last year, it's going to be 150 this year. You know, and these people came. So sponsors is hard in the beginning. Um, and you know, honestly, I'm not, you know, we've, we should be better at getting sponsors given how many events we run. Like uh, most of our big sponsors, like, like Acer, you know, the computer company, they, they were a global sponsor you know, they contacted us. Um, so I'd love to say, you know, we, I did a great sales process to get Acer, but you know, I was just very fortunate they, they wanted to come to our events. So I think a few things, first of all, on your website, your event website, and anywhere you can, have a like, you know, become a sponsor, become an exhibitor, have a have a, a big button, you know, just as prominent as your registration button with a link to a Google form where people can fill in some information and then you know get back to them straight away. So let because you know there'll be sponsors looking at your event. If you're running a first time event, 
I'd be very, very cheap on the sponsors. Don't charge them much. You know, just say, look, buy two tickets and you can have a, de- a regi- you know, an exib- exhibition desk of two people. Get a few sponsors there, you know. Um, you know, make some strict conditions. I mean, don't let sponsors present. I, I very rarely let sponsors present unless they've got something good to talk about and it's not a pitch. Um, you know, maybe let them introduce themselves at the beginning or the end, but just let them have an ex, you know, let them have um, a desk. I always give the sponsors a chance to, to, to sponsor the networking party, which, which can help pay for the free drinks I talked about, you know, then they get to say a few words at the party. But um, yeah, that's it really. I mean, you know, you've got to focus on attendees in the beginning. As you get bigger and bigger, then you can put more of your focus on, on sponsors and exhibitors. But in the beginning, it's all about attendees. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I like the networking party sponsorship stuff. That's uh, something I'm working on right now. The okay, let's talk uh, the events themselves. You know, some of the past interviews you've done were I didn't realize until I was looking at them again this morning. They were actually quite a few years ago. So I want to get to what's changed. But one of the things you mentioned was really talking about making the event memorable and kind of making it a real experience that people want to talk about. What's like, what are some of the things you do to make it so that people want to come back and, and tell their friends? I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's simple in the sense that, I mean, I already mentioned networking party. There's got to be great networking opportunities. They've got to get to meet everyone. They've got to have a good time. Um, but you just got to have amazing content, you know, like the, the speakers are your product that, you know, if you think of an event as a, as a, business you know the product you're selling is the sessions people get so there's no two ways about it if you have great sessions then everything else can be kind of crap but people will have it you know we'll we'll, we'll be happy about it and they'll recommend it so it's all about that you know it's all about creating your speakers uh, creating your schedule so you have a good mix of topics getting the right sessions right speakers and that, that that's it you know that's what's going to make people enjoy it right on what uh what i want to add to that because so this is like in my head, I've been to the social media marketing world, which is just an absolutely bonkers big conference, like 10,000 people attend or something. And so I went to that and in my head, I'm like, I want to recreate that. It's, you know, massive, you know, 100 foot screens and huge sound systems and bands and everything. And I'm like, all right, well, first year event, I'm not going to be able to do that. But I want that vibe, right? I want to recreate that vibe. And so I'm trying to come at this of like, okay, if I were here, if I were going to this event as an attendee, I'd paid my money. What would I want? Like, how would I want that experience to go? And that's, for me, that's sort of how I'm structuring the, the entire process. It's almost like a checklist, right? Okay, somebody shows up. This is what's going to happen. This happens next, 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 next. And, and really script yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you, Definitely. is there a, a particular system you use for check-in just to kind of keep, or, or, um, I guess obviously, you know, you have the, uh, events frame system you can and feel free to plug that if it's something you think yeah well we, we, we sold the business now so i'm not making yeah. any money ever but events <laughs> frame is a great system i highly recommend great ticket system integrates with paypal stripe brintree um no but i mean okay you need that yeah great great point you need everyone needs to have a great experience i mean for, for us people turn up you know registration it's fun you know you've the people behind the registration desk kind of high energy you've got to make sure your team and the speakers are milling around uh, always have tea and coffee ready. You know, you, that's the biggest mistake ever. You got to have snacks, tea and coffee, some nice pastries. People come in, they've got that. You know, that you'll get complaints if you don't get that. But people are kind of happy. Um, like I say, we do the photo booth. We get people to take their pictures taken. Always have music playing. You know, music playing, registration. We've got a few curated playlists that when people walk into the auditorium, 
we have playlist. Now, my my thing is start the day off with a keynote. Some people wait till the end of the day, like kick it off with a bang, have a, you know, and you don't, it doesn't have to be one keynote. Sometimes I have two or three main stage sessions. Like I've even done a few group X group things like, you know, an escape game, different things, but like start day one off with a bang. You know, if you hit it good in the first hour, then, you know, people are going to have probably have a good time because they're on a high. If you, if you lean, if people have a crappy hour, you've got to make it all up over two days. And that's tough, you know? So make sure you're, you know, if you've got two speakers in a two day event, your best speaker should be day one. Everything, let's hit it out of the gate. Don't try to finish strong, like start strong. And, and, and the networking event, you know, make sure people have a good time. Make sure all your speakers tell them it's a requirement to come to the networking event, mingle, talk to speakers. You know, they can't be kind of, you know, aloof and want to hang out by themselves. Um, I don't do anything like a speaker's dinner. I don't do anything where everyone doesn't get to go. I get everyone together and, and finish off. And do your networking event at the end of day one, you know, if you're doing a two-day event. Like it's a one-day event, end of the day, bang. And, and do it straight after the closing of the event. You, know, you, you could have a pause before go home uh, and an evening party. And, and it depends on the event. You know, if everyone's coming from out of town, then you can do that. But typically, if a lot of your attendees are, are local, then hit the hit the networking event early doors, you know, four o'clock, whatever. When the, when the session's finished, then everyone comes along. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think the the fewer opportunities you have to lose people, you know, if somebody goes home, I guarantee you half of them wouldn't come back. So yeah, the plan is to yeah. have it go. It literally ends, and even having that reception, that that cocktail hour. On site. It's funny so, you mentioned social media marketing world. I'm actually um, a guy got in touch. I'm actually interviewing him on Friday, I think. The the guy who founded social media marketing world, San Diego, isn't it? San Diego event. It's it's a guy. The guy. It's the guy who's famous for the Let's Get Social song. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Oh, man, how have you not seen that? It's a really. It's a little bit cringe worthy. Okay. I'm looking forward to talk to him. All right. Just cool. search for Let's Get Social. Um, it's got like a billion views. It's got it's one of the most popular YouTube videos ever. This guy made a, a song about social media at Social Media Marketing World, and he's the guy who founded the event. Nice. I'll check that out for sure. Um, okay. I, I want to ask you what some of the things you've learned that you wish you knew when you started, you know, any kind of like growing pains, but one that I, I want to ask directly because this is sort of one of my fears. Hopefully it will be unfounded, but what do you do when – you have a speaker lined up and that speaker doesn't show. Yeah, it happens. I mean, first of all, if they try to pull out, you just got to say, look, get them on the phone. Say, look, this is a, you know, this is a, you know, it, there's different reasons. If someone's serious tragedy or something, obviously what can you do about it? You know, but some people just try and pull out and I would just guilt them into coming. <laughs> I, I've done this before. I've turned it around and said, look, you know, you're causing us a serious issue here. We've sold tickets. People are expecting you to speak. If you pull out, it's going to cause me a real problem. You know, like basically, I will never work with you again. I mean, depending on the situation, I might even say that. You know, and and I won't. I mean, if someone pulls out of me without an amazing reason, I would never work with them again ever. And not only that, is if anyone asks me about them, I would tell them not to work with them. That that's kind of how I how I judge it. You know, if someone pulls out, so it's a serious thing. So, you know, first of all. Try to try to talk them around, you know, because they might want to come around. If, you know, obviously, you know, if it's a serious thing, then obviously, but you know, usually it isn't. Honestly, usually it isn't something serious. It's just they decided not to do it. You know, um, it doesn't happen that often to me. Um, I've always got nowadays one or two people in reserve. That was um, my next who, question. Lock <laughs> up an extra session, uh, or you know, just you know, you've got to be. 
it's not just this, right? You've got to be prepared for unexpected. That's one thing I didn't know at the beginning that I could give you a tip is like, just approach the event from the point of view of everything's going to go wrong. You know, the Wi-Fi is going to go down, the catering's not going to turn up, the coffee won't turn up, your attendees will get the wrong venue, um, the bar where you're in the networking event will have double booked and they won't do the party. You know, I've had to solve all these things, you know, on the fly, uh, and 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 many more. You know, just don't don't chill. You know, don't assume it's going to go well. Assume, and this is a very negative. I'm sure, like Buddhists or something, will say this is the wrong way to approach it, but it's how I approach it. Just be ready for everything to go wrong because then you're in the frame of mind to solve the problem, you know? Yeah. Uh, speakers don't turn up, you know? Just beforehand, think about it. Who else could do an extra session? Could you reorganize some sessions? You know, you could finish a session a bit early if, if, if you had to. You know, there's usually a way to reorganize it. Right on. Yeah, what do they say? Expect the best, but prepare for the worst? Yeah, exactly. Right on. Any other growing pains or, or things that you'd wish you'd known when you first started that you've learned over the past eight or so years? Um. I think in the beginning, I, I didn't, I wasn't as good at creating the speakers, you know, I like anyone who applied to speak, I'd let them speak because I kind of felt bad about wanting to let them speak, you know, because <laughs> I, I was kind of flattered they were showing interest in wanting to speak at my event. Uh, now, you know, that's, I'm super strict now. Like I told you, I realize that's the product we're selling. Um, you know, we reject most of the speakers uh, nowadays. So that, that's, that's one thing. Uh, I definitely was too casual on letting anyone speak in the beginning. Yeah, that's. Uh, I've had a couple of people reach out, and I haven't like researched them yet. But but, and this is terrible that I have like instead of like assuming the best, it's I'm a little dubious. I'm like, okay, what's their agenda? Because clearly, if they're reaching out wanting to speak, they have an agenda. But that's not always a bad thing. But yeah, is, are there any yeah. like as long as long as their flags? agenda is to make yeah, as long as their agenda is to promote themselves, you know, they can be a total sociopath, but it doesn't matter as long as their agenda is. <laughs> To make everyone think they're amazing. That's good because if everyone thinks they're amazing, they had a good time in their session. If their agenda is to promote their product or service, that's the red flag. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, that's that's good. Their like agenda that. is just like making making everyone love them. Perfect. Because if people love them, they're going to love your conference. That's good. I like that. Well, Dan, is there anything else you'd add for somebody you know running a, a first or second time event that, or just thinking they should run an event that you they should know? I think, uh, well, obviously, feel free to get in touch if you have any questions. I, I'm sure you'll put my email or, or website here. But, um, you know, if you're thinking of doing an event, just do it because it's easy to postpone it. And it might take you two or three or four years to get the event going, you know. So even if, it, even if it's a small event the first year, even if you break even or lose a little bit of money, then, you know, the next event, if you give everyone an amazing, amazing time, the second year would be a bit better and you get more people. Third year would be a bit better. You know, and then you, you might have social media marketing world after after four years. You know, <laughs> like you just just get going because time goes quick. You know, like you can put it off for a year, but you know, you just think in your own life how quickly time goes. You know, and like I can't believe I've been running this business for so long. You know, seems like yesterday. Yeah. So that's the thing. If you're thinking of doing it, just just do it because there's no point putting it off for another year because there'll never be a good time to do it. It's always going to be some hard work. All right, Dom. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks. There are a couple of key takeaways for me. First, don't be afraid to negotiate. The worst thing a venue, speaker, or hotel can say is no. But if you don't ask, you might be overpaying or not getting the perks you want. It's harder as a first year event, but as you build your credibility and audience size, it's easier to bring costs down with proof that you'll deliver an audience. The second is this, make the event memorable and valuable. 
Too many events I've been to are full of hype, but not much substance. Deliver the value and give people information they can really use, and you're most of the way there. A good networking party and social atmosphere that helps people connect and get to know each other and the speakers will really make it memorable, shareable, and more likely that they'll come back year after year. So what was my interest in learning all of this? I've launched Peak Content Summit, a content marketing strategy conference taking place in Asheville, North Carolina in March 2020. If you're a content creator, brand manager, PR person, marketer, or publisher that wants to grow your content revenue and influence, this is the conference for you. Check out the full speaker list, curriculum, and more at peakcontentsummit.com. That's peakcontentsummit.com, and I'll see you in March. Thanks for tuning in. Here's hoping you're making your next event great. Until next time, keep building.